The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 128, a song of ascents. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. Your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you out of Zion. And may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Well, that will be true very, very soon for one Hedico Garrett, won't it? She'll see her children's children. <laughs> Coming up in what? About 20, 20 days now, 22 days or something. Okay. Listen, I don't speak Russian or whatever you just said, okay? Whatever language you're speaking, I, I can't understand it. You'll have to speak in English. Okay, we are, yes. Zion, the political heart of Jerusalem. Yep, yep, that's right. Zion is the political heart of Jerusalem. Okay, we are in Judges 3, 12 through 23. This is Ehud, Judge of Israel, part one. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged and a cubit in length and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He said, Keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. I hate that when that happens. Every time that happens, I hate it. Okay, the day before I typed this sermon... There was a spat between a Republican congressman and a former Trump campaign staff person named Lizzie Marbach. She tweeted, There's no hope for any of us outside of having faith in Jesus Christ alone. This is what the Bible proclaims. Jesus himself stated it precisely in today's text verse. 
a Jewish congressman, Max Miller, responded. God says that Jewish people are the chosen ones, but yet you say we have no hope. Thanks for your pearl of wisdom today. Feeling the need to respond, I tweeted, Congressman Max Miller of Ohio, not being flippant or argumentative, but out of the hope that you will want to know more about Jesus, who is Yeshua, I would ask you to consider your words and reflect. Chosen for what? The point and purpose of Scripture and Israel is to reveal the Messiah. Lizzie Marbach is right. The only hope for any is faith in Jesus Christ alone. Scripture makes this 100% clear. Congressman Miller is also right. The Jews are the chosen people, but for a purpose beyond themselves. Scripture is not about the Jewish people, even if they play a prominent role in it. Jesus, he is the subject of Scripture, and without him, the hope of returning to the presence of God will not be realized. Our text verse today comes from John 14. It is verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As for the contents of the passage today, they read like a super spy thriller, something I didn't know about history, but which Charles Ellicott enlightened me to, is that this is not the only such incident in history. Maybe having read this very passage, someone else followed a similar plan of attack. From Charles Ellicott, the assassination is exactly similar to that of Henry III of France by the Dominican monk Jacques Clement, who had provided himself with a commission from a friend of the king. On Tuesday, August 1st, at 8 a.m., says Le Estol, he was told that a monk desired to speak with him. The king ordered him to be admitted. The monk entered, having in his sleeve a knife unsheathed. He made a profound reverence to the king, who had just got up and had nothing but a dressing gown on, and presented him dispatches from the Comte de Brienne, saying that he had further orders to tell the king privately something of importance. Then the king ordered those who were present to retire, and began reading the letter. The monk, seeing his attention engaged, drew his knife from his sleeve and drove it right into the king's small gut below the navel. So home that he left the knife in the hole. That's uh, Guizot, History of France, some paragraph three of 479 or something. Anyway, there you go. An interesting passage about a king getting whacked in his own cool chamber is to be found in God's superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first of two thoughts today is the corpulent king. It's verses 12 through 18. Verse 12, And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Rather than again, it says, Ve'yosifu b'nei Yisrael la'asot hara b'nei Yehovah. And added sons Israel to do the evil in eyes Yehovah. It's not just that they again did evil, but they added to the evil that had been done. It is as if a divine counter is weighing out the evil each time it is added. This is actually the case, though the effect of it won't be realized for hundreds of years. This is what it says in the book of Leviticus. From chapter 26, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. 
Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate, and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. At the time of Jeremiah, the first exile took place, lasting 70 years. The adding of the evil is something that requires correction. Eventually, exile from the land is necessary to allow the land to be free from the wickedness of Israel. Using the article before evil shows the severity of the offense against the Lord. They flagrantly do wicked deeds right before his eyes, making it a personal attack against him. Therefore, verse 12, continuing, So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel. Better, it says, Vechazek Yehovah et Eglon melech Moab al Yisrael, and strengthened Eglon, king Moab, upon Israel. Using the word al, upon, gives the sense of downward motion. The action is against Israel, as if Eglon is sitting upon them, squishing them oppressively. Eglon is spelled the same as the city named Eglon in Joshua 10. It means heifer-like, coming from Egel, meaning calf. But that comes from agol, round or circular, because of how a calf dances around in a circle. Moab means from father. It is the name given to the son born to the union of Lot with his firstborn daughter. There it says in Genesis 19, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. This king of Moab has been strengthened by the Lord to come down upon Israel. Verse 12 continues, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Alki asu et hara be'ene Yehovah, upon, for did the evil in eyes Yehovah. The clause uses al, upon, again. It also uses the same term, the evil, as the first clause. Eglon was brought upon Israel because they had brought upon evil in the Lord's eyes. The Lord's actions are shown to be exactingly in response to Israel's actions. There's nothing arbitrary, vindictive, or unfair in him strengthening Eglon. It is because Israel is the Lord's people that he has taken this action. Eglon is not strengthened because he is the leader of the Lord's people, but because he is the enemy of them, and thus the correcting force to be used against them. In order for this to come about, it next says, verse 13, Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek. Va ye'esof elav et bene Ammon va Amalek, and gathered unto him sons Ammon and Amalek. While Israel was adding the evil to their account, Eglon was gathering together his military strength. Ammon means something like a people. They are close relations to the Moabites. They descend from the union between Lot and his youngest daughter. Again, Genesis 19. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. Ben-Ami means son of my people. This is shortened to Ammon, a people. Ammon lived in the area north of Moab, east of the Jordan. Amalek is derived from the word Am, or people, and Malak, which means to nip or wring off the head of a bird with or without severing it from the body. Thus, they are the people who wring off. They are those who are disconnected from the body and strive to disconnect the body. Amalek consisted of clans descending from Edom that were spread throughout the area. They were the first to attack Israel after the Exodus. 
and the Lord swore war against them. From Exodus 17, then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Because these groups are descended from Lot and Esau, meaning Edom, they are all considered close relatives to, believe it or not, Israel. And yet they are in a state of enmity with them. Together, these tribes, verse 13 continues, went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. Vayelech vayak et Yisrael vayirshu et ur ha-temarim and went and struck Israel and possessed city the Palms. The tamar, or palm, is used in scripture to signify uprightness. Thus, it is the city of upright ones. According to Deuteronomy 34, verse 3, Ur HaTemarim, or city, the palms, is Jericho. However, Jericho was destroyed back in Joshua chapter 6 and will not be rebuilt until 1 Kings 16. Therefore, this is either referring to the extended area of Jericho or to another city with palms. The former seems likely. The area of Jericho is a large plain. Verse 14. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. 18 is either 2 times 9 or 3 times 6. 2 times 9 indicates division matched with finality or judgment. 3 times 6 indicates divine perfection matched with the number of man destitute of God. Both fit the situation. Israel has the choice of serving the Lord or Eglon. In this case, they serve Eglon until the finality of their judgment. Likewise, this is the Lord's divinely set period for Israel while they are destitute of the Lord's favor. Israel's being instructed on what it means to serve the Lord or to serve their enemies. Verse 15, but when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, these are the same words as Judges 3 verse 9 when referring to Othniel. Va Yizaku bene Yisrael el Yehovah, and cried out, sons Israel, unto Yehovah. Eventually, the oppression of Eglon became too much for them. They remembered the Lord in their oppression, and they cried out to him for relief. Now, does anybody see the irony of him being a big, fat guy, which I don't, have we said that yet? Probably not, but he's sitting upon Israel. You can get the mental picture of why the text is saying this. Therefore, verse 15 continues, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Vayakem Yehovah lahem Moshiach, and raised Yehovah to them Savior. The words are close to what was said in verse 3-9. In their crying out to him, the Lord sends a savior. This time it is, verse 15 continues, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The words are a paraphrase. More precisely, et Ehud ben Gera ben Haimini ish iter yad yemino. Ehud, son Gera, son the right, man shut hand right. I should hold up that hand. There's a lot going on in these few words. First, Ehud is spelled two ways in scripture. Ehud with an H or Ehud with a H plus, we'll call it. The Ehud in Judges is the former. His name is derived from Yada, to throw or cast. However, that then signifies praise because one throws out the Yad, the hand, when praising God. 
For example, this is its first use in scripture when referring to the birth of Judah to Leah. It says there, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, now I will praise Yada the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Yehuda. Yehuda means praise. Then she stopped bearing. Therefore, the name Ehud means something like, I shall praise, or one who praises. However, Strong's connects it to the name Ohad, which comes from a root meaning unity or united. Next, Gera may come from Gera, a grain, as in one-twentieth of a shekel, like a grain of silver. That comes from Gerar, meaning to drag. Imagine dragging something across a plate of silver and thus forming a grain. It is the same root as the location named Gerar. Hence, the name is variously translated as grain, dragging, or sojourning. Further, he is then noted as Ben-Hai-Min-Ni, or son the right, meaning son of the right hand. It is a way of saying Benjamite that will be seen nine times in scripture, but only four of those times it will include the article, the right Lastly, the words use a phrase found only here and in Judges 20, verse 16, man shut hand right. Thus, it either means he is one, defective in his right hand, two, left-handed, this being an idiomatic expression, or three, that he is ambidextrous. It is probably an idiom, but he may be ambidextrous, as is seen in Judges 20, verse 16. It says there, among all this people were 700 select men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. It is unlikely that 700 men of Benjamin had defective right hands. Therefore, it may be an ironic trait common in Benjamin, son of the right hand, to have left-handed ambidextrous offspring. Or it may be that they purposefully worked to improve their left hands as a play on their name. Hey, there's Lefty, the son of the right hand. Verse 15 continues. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Va yishlechu b'nei Yisrael be'ado mincha le'eglon melech Moab. And sent sons Israel in his hand, offering to Eglon, king Moab. This may be a present in the usual sense or a gift of tribute levied upon them. The latter seems likely. The word mincha is euphemistically used to indicate tribute elsewhere, such as 1 Kings 4, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life, mincha. One can see that Ehud is the one who has been selected to pay the sum to Eglon for Israel. Verse 16, now Ehud made himself a dagger, vaya'as lo Ehud cherev, and made to him Ehud sword. This is the key to the passage. Ehud has taken it upon himself to make the implement of the enemy's doom. It is a brilliant strategy because of his ability to use his left hand. Of this cherev, or sword, it next says, verse 16 continues, it was double-edged and a cubit in length. I'm going to do something I very rarely do with these words. Velashene peyot gomed areka. And to her, two mouths gomed her length. I wasn't even going to try to translate it for you. There's so much not knowing about that word that we're just going to leave it, gomed. It is referring to the sword. 
It is double-edged, using the idiom of a mouth to describe it, because the sword is a consuming instrument. The word gomed is found only here in scripture. Strong's describes it saying, from an unused root, apparently meaning to grasp, probably a span, a cubit. The Greek translation identifies it as a span. Thus, it would be a short knife similar to a stiletto. It would be straight and without any curves. One can deduce from the passage that not only does it have two edges, but despite the translation in the verses ahead, it also has no hilt. It is a surgical weapon specifically designed by Ehud for a particular purpose. His actions are premeditated and they are carefully planned. As for the length, some Jewish interpreters say it is a short cubit. Instead of being from the elbow to the fingertips, it would be from the elbow to the knuckles. If so, it would be about 13 inches. This might probably explain the root meaning to grasp. Ending at the point of the knuckles would mean it ends at a spot where grasping takes place. This is all speculation, and that's why I just left it gomed. The only word associated with this word in Scripture is another word found only once, gamadim, used in Ezekiel 27, verse 11. There it says, Men of Arvad, with your army, were on your walls all around. And the men of Gamad, the Gamadim, were in your towers. They hung their shields on your walls all around. They made your beauty perfect. If the meaning of the root is correct, they are those who grasp short swords, and thus are men of valor who fought in very close battle. That's only speculation. Nobody actually knows. Verse 16 continues, and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. And girded her from under to his garment upon thigh his right. The reason for the intricacy of the description is to reveal how he is able to bring such a sword into the presence of a king. It is normally assumed that a person is right-handed. If Ehud was ambidextrous, he could conceal this by openly greeting others with his open right hand, presenting the tribute with it, and so on. Thus, it would be completely unexpected to have a sword hidden on his right thigh. The word translated as garment, mad, signifies a measure or height. By implication, it is used to define a garment that fits the height of a person. The yarek, or thigh, comes from a root meaning to be soft. Thus, it speaks of the thigh, loins, side, and so on. It is the same word used to indicate the center shaft of the menorah of the tabernacle. With all of this intricate detail provided, it next says, verse 17, So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Vayakrev et hamincha le'eglon melech Moab. And brought near the offering to Eglon, king Moab. It doesn't just say he brought it, but that Ehud brought the mincha, his offering, near to Eglon. It's like he's right next to him. There's no way of knowing if this was a regular thing or if this is his first time doing so. Either way, he was allowed to approach the king personally and present the offering. As such, it seems there is a sense of the king knowing Ehud well enough to allow this or that the king was trusting enough to allow him to approach. As for the word karav or come near, it is used dozens of times in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers to indicate presenting a sacrifice or offering to the Lord. 
Ehud is coming near in the manner of an offering to the one in greater position. In this case, Ehud was aware of exactly what was necessary to accomplish this goal. It is a process that already included knowing the following about Eglon. Verse 17 continues, now Eglon was a very fat man. Ve'eglon ish bari me'od, and Eglon man fat very. Using the word astios, the Greek says that he was polished, urbane, handsome, fair, friendly, courteous, elegant, or something like that. This does not fit with the Hebrew at all. Rather, John Lang notes, in Egypt, where the translators lived, it was probably still a matter of present experience that presentations of tribute and gifts to rulers did not always meet with a gracious reception. That would help explain the unusual rendering of the word in the Greek. The Hebrew word bari clearly indicates fat, plump, plentiful, and so on. Using this word, accompanied by the word me'od, muchness, it signifies that he was exceedingly plump. The Hebrew reading is what is being conveyed, as we will see in his impending doom. As for the offering by Ehud, verse 18, and when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. Isn't this fascinating? Aren't you just loving it? I, I love this. The words are dependent on the next verses to be fully understood. For now it says, and it was, according to which finished to bring near the offering and sent the people bearing the offering. The offering has been made and the entire company has left the presence of Eglon. Of this presentation, Ellicott says the following, the tribute bearers headed by Ehud would carry their offerings in long pompous array according to the fashion of the East, which always aims at making a present seem as large as possible. That's, for example, Genesis 32, 16. Fifty persons often bear what one man could easily carry. With the offering made, the company is on its way back, and Ehud resolves to take his premeditated action. It is a brilliant plan. They have been in the presence of the king, be it three or fifty-three people. There was no hint of any threat to the king, something that surely would have taken place only when a multitude was present or so one would think. Killed with Ehud's double-edged sword, an ignoble way for life to end. But he was an enemy of the people of the Lord, and so a jabbing thrust Ehud did send. Victory over the oppressing foe, down he went never to rise. Off to the pit the enemy did go, and Ehud will receive the victory prize. The story is giving us hints of glory ahead, tidbits of detail leading us to know that the enemy will someday be dead. Victory for the redeemed, a heavenly show. Our second thought today is, down goes Eglon. It's verses 19 through 23. Verse 19, but he himself turned back. There is an emphasis in the words translated as he himself to get the point across. It says, vehu shav, and he turned back. It specifically notes his turning back after having sent those who were with him. This would take suspicion off of his mission. If he were to attack, one would assume it would be when others were with him to help. Thus, the guard of the king and among his attendants would be down. It would also keep the others from being included in this act, hopefully sparing them if he failed. And so he alone turned back. Verse 19 continues, from the stone images that were at Gilgal. Min ha pesalim asher et ha Gilgal, from the carved images which by the Gilgal. Some translations here say stone quarries. 
That is a later suggestion from the Aramaic translation and Rabbi Jarki, probably to avoid any hint of there being idolatry in the land. That's rather a name considering that Israel got itself into this pickle because of idolatry. It is unknown if this is the same Gilgal that was the first place of the encampment after crossing the Jordan or some other place. Gilgal simply signifies a circle, generally of stones. There are many such circles in Israel today. As has been seen numerous times in Joshua, the name metaphorically and typologically means liberty. That's what we're looking for. It doesn't matter where it's at. That's what we're looking for, liberty. As for why there are stone images there, it could be that Moab placed them there as a defiant act against Israel's God. As the Moabites rule Israel, they would be showing their greatness over him by placing their own images in this location. For this or for some other reason, they are specifically mentioned. But it may also be a pretext for why Ehud is returning to Eglon. That would be a possibility based on the next words. Verse 19 continues and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. Vayomer devar seter li elecha hamalech and said, word secret to me unto you, the king. Having returned from the carved images, he could be indicating that he received his secret message while there among them. That seems even more likely based on what he will say in the next verse. Being a secret message, the king knows enough to not trust those around him to keep their mouth shut. Thus, verse 19 continues, he said, keep silence, and all who attended him went out from him. Vayomer has vayetsu me'alav kal ha'omadim alav, and said, hush, and went out from him, upon the standers, upon him. If the message is secret, it would be as smart as conveying it in front of Adam Schiff to allow it to be heard by the king's attendants. As a secret, it was a matter that should be kept secret. Ehud had come in publicly and presumably unarmed. Therefore, Eglon quieted Ehud and sent out the attendants first. Verse 20, so Ehud came near. Ve'ehud ba'elav, and Ehud came unto him. The previous words were spoken either at a distance or in a loud voice. Now that the attention of the king is upon the message, and to ensure nobody outside could hear, Ehud is allowed to approach him. With that understood, a parenthetical explanation of the layout is next provided. Verse 20 continues. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool, private chamber. To set the king apart from the surroundings, it emphatically states, Vehu Yoshev Ba'aliyat Hamkara, and he, sitting in loft the coolness. Two new words are used here. The first is Aliyah. This is the feminine form of Allah, or to ascend. Thus, it is an upper room, a loft, or something like that. The other word, Mekara, is found only here and in verse 24. It is a noun signifying coolness. John Lang, citing Thomas Shaw, says the following. Down to the present day, many oriental houses have a smaller one annexed to them, which sometimes rises one story higher than the main building. In Arabic, as in Hebrew, this is called aliyah and serves for purposes of entire seclusion or rest. There is a door of communication from it into the gallery of the house, besides another which opens immediately from a privy stairs down into the porch or street without giving the least disturbance to the house. 
Once he had approached Eglon, Ehud needs the king to arise in order to get about the business at hand. Verse 20 continues, Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. Vayomer Ehud davar Elohim li elecha, and said Ehud, word God, or more likely God's plural, to me unto you. The reason I inserted gods as a possibility is because he has just returned from the carved images. It may be that by using gods, it would excite Eglon about a message from the gods of that area. This seems to be the reason for mentioning them in the first place. The same word, Elohim, refers to the true God and to false gods. Therefore, the understanding of the word by Eglon is what drives the interpretation, and he is a polytheist, probably thinking of gods. Ehud could be thinking of one thing, while Eglon another. That isn't the important aspect of the matter. To Eglon, what is important is that it is a divine message. Therefore, in accord with the plans of Ehud, verse 20 continues, so he arose from his seat. Vayakum me'al ha'kiseh, and arose from upon his throne. Eglon, being a portly person, retained his respect for a divinely sent message. He may sit around all day eating grapes without arising, but at the thought of being entertained with a word from the other side, he respectfully arose from his throne, exactly as Ehud anticipated. Verse 21, then Ehud reached with his left hand, Vayishlach Ehud et Yad Smolo, and sent Ehud hand his left. The word left, Smol, may be derived from the word Simla, a wrapper or a mantle. Thus it would give the idea of being wrapped up and thus dark, as if it's enveloped. The left in the Bible corresponds with the north, which also gives the sense of dark or hidden. Because in the Northern Hemisphere, as we're seeing right now, the North receives less light in the winter. Therefore, the hidden hand is reaching for the hidden sword. Without uttering a word, thus making this action the word, meaning the message from Elohim, he immediately reached down with his left hand. It would have been so unexpected that Eglon probably wouldn't have even reacted at this point. Then, with the skill of a Sikari, it next says he, verse 21, took the dagger from his right thigh. Vayika et hacherev me'al yerek yemino, and took the sword from upon thigh his right. His actions would have taken a second or less with someone practiced in the move. With that, the final part of the maneuver would still add almost no time at all. He reached down, grabbed the sword by the haft, pulled it out of its sheath, verse 21 continues, and thrust it into his belly. And thrust her in his belly. The word taka signifies a thrust, a blow, a clap, and so on. At times, it signifies to blow a trumpet, as in blasting out the sound. Ehud didn't just stab him, but forcefully thrust the sword into him. The beten here translated as belly, often signifies the womb. It is from an unused root, probably meaning to be hollow. Ehud targeted the midsection of Eglon with his sword and really drove the lady home. So much so that, verse 22, even the hilt went in after the blade. Vayavo gam hanitzav, and went in also the haft. It is a word found only here in scripture, nitzav. It signifies fixed. 
It could not have a hilt unless it was a really, really dinky one. The purpose of a hilt is to protect the wielder from cuts and to keep a sword from doing what this one actually did. He didn't need to be protected from cuts, and this baby went all the way in. Verse 22 continues, and the fat closed over the blade. Vayiskor hachelev be'ad halahav, and closed the fat upon the flame. The blade of the sword is called its flame here because of how it flashes as it strikes. But probably equally so, it is like the mouth, the edge of the sword, in that it also consumes, being like fire. In this case, Eglon's fat covered over the blade. Verse 22 continues, for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly. Kilo shalaf hacherev mi bitno, for no drew the sword from his belly. By this point, it would be very hard to pull it out. It had gone all the way in, including the haft. Trying to grab it through blood and fat would be almost impossible. Plus, verse 22 continues, and his entrails came out. ha parshdona, and came out the parshdona. It is a word also found only here in scripture, parshdona. It is derived from parash, to make distinct or declare, and parad, to divide. Various suggestions have been made as to what this is referring to. Kyle notes that the subject to the verb is the blade. If so, then it is not referring to the excrement, like the King James Version says, or to the entrails, like the New King James Version says, or so on. Rather, it is the blade coming out, probably as translated by Darby, between the legs, or Kyle, the anus podex. If the former, it was a downward thrust, and the parshdona is the open space, meaning distinct, between the legs, meaning divide. If the latter, the same is true, but ignomiously referring to his backside. The latter actually seems more likely, because it is unlikely a hood would have been able to see the blade sticking out down below. However, if Eglon collapsed forward and fell on his face, the sword protruding out of the old backside would be perfectly evident. Ouch. A blade 13 or so inches long could certainly have this effect. If the half was not included in the earlier description, giving the length of the sword, it could have come out several more inches. No matter what, it was a rather embarrassing and crummy way to check out of this life. With that happily affected by Ehud, it says, verse 23, then Ehud went out through the porch. Vayetse Ehud ha mistrona, and went out Ehud the mistrona. It is another unique and difficult word, mistron. Because it is found only here, the meaning is as debated as that of the previous verse. It is generally accepted to come from seder arrangement or order. Thus, some say a porch or a colonnade. It is noted that because of the similarity of the words to the previous verse, the subject of both may actually be eglon. If so, then the word parshdona is also referring to a part of the house, not eglon's entrails or his backside. If so, the translation of the verb is went, not came. Vayetseha parshdona and went out ehud the parshdona meaning Eglon's Parshdona. And the next verse is, Vayetse Ehud Ha Mistrona, and went out Ehud the Mistrona, Eglon's Mistrona. Okay, that's just speculation. That is highly unlikely. 
Why it would say Ehud in the second instance and not the first throws a wrench into that. But it is still not impossible, as Hebrew writing often includes a needed noun only in the second clause or sentence. If this is so, then it would mean there was probably a dividing room where the king sat and where the attendants would gather, an open space distinct between rooms divide. However, it does appear that the sword, not eglon, is the subject of the previous clause. If so, then the rhyming nature of the words may simply be an alliterative tool to highlight the difference in what happened. The sword came out of Eglon's Parshtona. Meanwhile, Ehud went out of Eglon's Mistrona. The words are highly complicated. And from the earliest times, that's important to understand, there has been little agreement on what they are saying. Nobody agrees on it. Thus, I have tried to present you with various options for maximum biblical happiness, something that Eglon did not experience. As for this clause, Ehud either exited through the same doors as the attendees earlier, or he went out through another side door. Upon his exiting, it says, verse 23 continues, and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. And shut doors the loft upon him and locked them. This was to delay anyone from chasing Ehud. If he got away unnoticed, or even if they saw him and allowed him to leave, figuring his business was done and the king would call when they were needed, they would be delayed while patiently waiting at the door. As for the word na'al or lock, it is new to scripture. It signifies both to lock and to furnish with shoes. As a door is shut and bolted, when a foot is shod, it is likewise shut off from the outside. Ehud shut the doors and secured them for his getaway. While the corpse of the corpulent king is wallowing in its own blood behind closed doors, Ehud is making his way back to Israel. The exciting adventure into the life of Ehud will come next week, the Lord willing. For now, we must close with the thought that Jesus is the reason for this and every such story. Stick around and you will find out. I know this has been completely gross today. It's something that you can't even believe is in scripture. And I had to give you the descriptions. I almost do apologize for that, but I want to make sure that you understand what's going on. But Jesus is in these details. Believe me on that. There are already hints and clues as to why we are being told these things. If you go over the individual words this week, comparing them to earlier sermons, you will be able to get a portion of what is being conveyed. When we get through the verses next week, we will be able to see the full typological picture of what the Lord is telling us. As a simple life lesson concerning what we have seen thus far, Israel failed to heed the word of the Lord. They departed from him, and he sent a foe of Israel to afflict and oppress them to bring them back to himself. That has started to be realized with the selection and actions of Ehud. Also, Eglon was a human, just like the billions of humans who have existed on the earth since the beginning. He really lived, and he really died. His death was apart from the covenant people, and there is no indication that he was a believer or participant in God's redemptive plans. This means he died apart from salvation. God is working through human history to bring man back to himself, but not all people will be saved. Only those whose trust is properly directed to the Lord will inherit what he has planned. Since the coming of Jesus, this means faith in him. Thus, all people have a choice. 
including Representative Max Miller mentioned earlier. And this includes you, too. We must submit ourselves to what God has offered, and His offering is the giving of Jesus Christ for our sins. If we accept that premise, we will be saved. He is the incarnate Word, God united with human flesh, who came to fulfill the law and give His life in exchange for our sins based on that fulfillment. Let us be wise and accept this wonderful offer of grace. Don't wait. Eglon wasn't expecting his sudden end, and we don't know when ours will come. Be ready. Call on Jesus today. This is the simplicity of the gospel, is all we have to do is believe. And God has given you opportunity. You're right now listening to this sermon, either right here or somebody online, and it'll be online, and maybe somebody will click on it, and he can't say that he wasn't told that Jesus is necessary to be saved. That's why I do this every single week, is because I want people to think this issue through. It's logical. It can be validated simply by reason. We don't need the Bible to understand a lot of the theology involved in salvation, but we need the Bible to understand how it occurs and who makes it possible. You can't do that without Jesus. And Jesus is the one that is described in Scripture. I was listening to Radio Agape this morning on uh, uh, the iPad while I was getting the place ready, and it was all in Hebrew, so obviously I don't understand very well what they were talking about, but it was quite apparent by the use of the word Islam, Muslim, and a dozen other words that I was listening to that they were evangelizing Muslims. And I was so thankful for that. They're in Israel. They could get exploded for doing what they're doing, and they are doing it because they want to reach out to these people to tell them the saving message of Jesus. And so they were doing that. They, you could hear them contrasting, you know, Islam this and then Yeshua this. And it was so beautiful to listen to them saying those things. And I would pray that you would be willing to do the same thing, telling people that you come in contact with this message. Jesus Christ died for your sins. Jesus Christ was buried. Jesus Christ rose again. We're in time. We're going forward. And we cannot undo what we have done, what has already separated us from God. Only Jesus can only Jesus. And so please get that message out, accept the gospel, and you will be saved. Our closing verse comes from Psalm 86, verse 12. Think of the word yada to throw out your hands. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Next week, Judges 3, 24 through 31. The story is good. Yes, it's a good one to tell, and this we will do. It is entitled Ehud, Judge of Israel. Part two. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 10th Judge's Sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who judges his people according to their deeds. So follow him, live for him, and trust him. And he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? All right. I got a question. This came from a little deck of cards that uh, I was given to simplify my question so that maybe some of you will get it. If you don't get it, it ain't my fault. Okay, if you get this question, you will receive Matt and Debbie Hayes' 1988 Pro Street Thunderbird. Hmm. At what time did Jesus die? Okay. That's good. That's correct. So you got that. Uh, what does the Bible say about it specifically? Because it gives a different dating. It is correct. The what? 
Ninth hour. hour. He's right. Ninth hour. Okay. It's specifically the ninth hour, but it is three o'clock. And some translations say three o'clock because they just want to make it simple for dummies like us. Okay. So you were the first one to call it out. You get a uh, Pro Street Thunderbird. I can't believe it. Very good, Susan. Doctor... That was marvelous. You got the uh, the technical word. It is found in Mark 15, verse 33. Jesus died. Now, one thing I'll tell you before we, we finish up is that if you take the time of Jesus when he was brought before the people and the time that Jesus was crucified and the time he died, it follows the pattern of the sacrifices in the temple. They have a morning offering. Jesus was presented at the time of the morning offering. He went all the way through the day of passion, and he died at the time of the evening sacrifice. He fulfills every single thing that happens in Scripture. Everything. There is nothing. If you don't know these things, go back and watch the Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers sermons, and you will learn all of that detail. It is all there. It is all about Jesus, and it is wonderful. Okay, I got a poem, and we'll take the Lord's Supper. This is entitled Ehud, Judge of Israel, Part 1. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened according to his word, Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Amalon and Amalek, this is not a digression, went and defeated Israel. And the city of Palms he took as a possession. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, a man with no fears. The Benjamite, a left-handed man, good for hiding the coming stab. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged and a cubit in length pretty nifty, Stan, and fasten it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. He did that thing. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He said, keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So Ehud came to him. He was sitting in his cool private chamber upstairs. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat to learn of these affairs. Then Ehud reached with his left hand. He had started the plan and was determined not to quit. Took the dagger from his right thigh and into his belly thrust it. Even the hilt went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. Gross, no doubt for he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. Then Ehud went out through the porch, maybe thinking about a vacation in Bethlehem, and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom. (laughs) Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the the story that you've given us. Despite the details, which are a little uh, rough on modern sensibilities, they are there to tell us something, and it is wonderful. 
thank you that it's there. Thank you that we can know the things that are in there because of how it is structured and what it's telling us uh, will lead us to a better understanding of the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, uh, if there's anybody here today with a heavy heart, I hope that they would drop that and that they would know that they are the redeemed of the Lord and that no matter what, through sickness or through trial or through trouble, that they have a better hope than this fallen world, all because of the work of Jesus. We thank you for that. We thank you for the grace that has been bestowed upon us, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, Chief. Yes. Um, I, I have a question. I'm yes. assuming that perhaps someone else like me, I, I have a hard time sometimes visualizing yep. how this is possible. Okay. So... Could you maybe come around to the front so you can show us on your thigh? I can't imagine how the the measurements you describe this blade as. That's why there's speculation on how long it is. All I know is that it says that it's on there. It's strapped on. It may be on the front. It may be on the inside. Uh But it's there. And you got to figure this is 18 inches here. So a 13-inch blade would fit. And so... place where you can grab it. Well, I said that may be that the haft is included or it may not be. I have no idea. It doesn't tell us. This is very obscure Hebrew. It doesn't tell us at all. All I know is that he probably, typical uh, Arab garment, it would be something loose fitting. And so all he had to do, he's got his right hand, which he's expecting him to come up and say a secret. He reaches down, opens it, grabs it, pulls it out, and just straight in or like this, you know, and I'm doing it, I'm not left-handed, but it would be different with him. But um, uh, it, it wouldn't be that improbable. I, I mean, I can't even see it as improbable. It seems most likely to me. It's like the guy that did it with the thing in his, his thing here. Yeah, I mean, if you just think it through and go home and practice for an hour, you'll have it down. I guarantee it. I guarantee you will. Um, be careful when people are around you, though. Um, so... Um, just so you know, if anybody feels like they're in Hollywood today, I finally got all of the lights changed in here this week. I came in and replaced all of them. So that's why if it's not so dark and dingy anymore, after 10 years, the lights were just bad. So I replaced everything. It's all LED lights. And so it should last at least until I die, whatever. Um, I don't have to do that again. But everything is new in here. And uh, uh, does anybody, I've got seven of them. I've got seven LED lights that are two by two panels, just like this, but they're fluorescent. I've got bulbs and everything for them. Nobody? Okay. Um, I've been trying to find a home for them, and if I have to, I'll recycle them, but I hate to throw stuff away. Anyway, um, lights are done. Knife is explained. Let me see. There was something else I was going to tell you guys. Um, uh, I don't remember. Maybe I'll remember while we're taking the Lord's Supper.